When John's on worship, <clears throat> we're always trying to find the song that goes with the lectionary reading. And bless him, last week he missed his big chance. I went into workingpreacher.org and there across the top, the very first words in the commentary were, you've got to serve somebody, Bob Dylan. So if last week's had been John's band, we would have been doing Bob Dylan, got to serve somebody. So it didn't take as long this week as we send back Facebook messages about the lectionary reading and worship to get a title for this week, Money Doesn't Talk, It Swears. It's another Bob Dylan line. And when they were rehearsing that riff before the service and we were all praying together, I was going, I know that riff. What is that song? And I had to look to my oracle of music to tell me what it was and Michael Fitch told me it was Dire Straits Money for Nothing as maybe some of you caught on there now look at them yo-yos that's the way they do it you play the guitar on the MTV that ain't working but that's the way you do it money for nothing and your chicks for free sometimes money doesn't talk it swears Sometimes money is just vulgar. Maybe dire straits at the top of their game, probably at the richest mark and offer it ever was, with the decadence of bringing sting on to backing vocals, was taking the plank out of his own eye as he pointed around the world at justice issues. Was it really just vulgar that playing on MTV should make them as rich as they were? Or footballers, particularly who play for my team, Manchester City. Money doesn't talk, it swears. Yaya Tori is dropped because his agent said something about the manager and he can't play but he's getting £100,000 a week not to play. It's vulgar. Not that I'm changing to support some team in the lower regions like Man United. Oh. Amelda Marcus, do we not remember her in all her shoes? Garth Hewitt went and toured and told us all about Amelda Marcus's shoes in the Philippines as the country were living in all this poverty. Money doesn't talk sometimes. It swears. Now, if you're a Fitzroy person and you've been with us in the last couple of weeks, we've been, we've been in messy territory in the lectionary readings because last week we had this incredibly strange parable about the shrewd manager. And thank you for all your comments after it. I just wish you had all your comments before it. It would have been a whole lot of a better sermon. But at least we all admit it, we did wrestle with that. And what we saw last week was that this parable that Jesus told, the most famous of all, the prodigal son, which is at the end of chapter 15, and most of us would agree they shouldn't have put the 16 in there because that breaks up the, uh, the kind of text, and then moved into this shrewd manager that then moves with a few verses in between into the story of Lazarus and the rich man. And in between, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus was aware that sometimes money doesn't talk. It swears. And who is he talking to? 
Well, verses 14 and 15 of Luke chapter 16 explain that to us. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And he said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. But God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. And that might be a link into all the parables and the stories of all the parables that Jesus at the start of chapter 15 is having this little bit of a fracas with the Pharisees and then goes into this list of parables. Justifying themselves in the eyes of others by things that were detestable in the eyes of God. And when we come into today's story, Rich Man and Lazarus, we seem again to be talking about money. Now, I live in BT9. And that's lovely, and thank you. Malone Park would have been nice, but you sold that one, didn't you? Wouldn't well, that have been great? We could have had all kinds of things going on in, in Malone Park, couldn't we? Six bedrooms and apparently a big garden, and then you moved to downcast to Maryville Park. And it's still wonderful, and thank you for it. But when you say you live in BT9, then that can get you into trouble. Jasmine's friends at school think she's posh. We don't think we're posh, but we live in BT9. And sometimes the neighbor's children get things and we're looking at our girls and trying to explain to them why the neighbor's children get things, but we can't get them those things because actually, though we live in BT9, we really don't have the kind of money that should be able to live in BT9 if it wasn't that we were the minister of Fitzroy. And in the midst of that BT9 world, I have watched, I have watched people who have lived simply for the wealth and maybe even the BT9 address or the car. Their very existence has been lived around money. And in their lives, it doesn't talk sometimes, it swears. And all these three parables are the very clearest that in these three parables, religious people are putting wealth in the way of relationships, in the way of grace-driven relationships with those probably on a strata below them in the caste system. I was talking to Christine this week about India and what they do in India and the Dalits, and then she told me about this other sort of tribal group that were even lower than the Dalits. And, And actually, without... And, and I, don't, I don't say this wrongly or trying to say anything against other faiths, but there's probably something even within the Hindu system of things where that breaks into the world that we live in and there's a caste system almost embedded in that idea. People living in some place that they're not respected by others. Was Lazarus? Would Lazarus have been seen as one of the Dalits of his time? Jesus is trying to hit something here on what our priorities are. And Amos agrees. The lecture reading from the Old Testament, you put off the day of disaster and bring near the day of terror. What is the judgment that God has upon his people? You lie in beds adorned with ivory and lounge in couches. You dine in choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on your musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions. Bought on the Lisburn Road. No, sorry, it's not in there. Um, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph here's a people who the money has got to a point where it's not talking it's actually swearing the priorities of the kingdom of God have been distracted by the blinding human made light of bling 
Priorities were lost. Grace to the poor and marginalized and broken had been ignored. Now, as I said at the start, I wasn't going to mention you two on their 40th birthday. And then this morning, really early on, because I had a 14-hour day yesterday marrying Ali and Greg, and it was fantastic. But can I just give a wee bit of advice, and I hope they're not listening to this, because it was a wonderful... And it wasn't... uh, Ali's from Derry, so Loch-esque seemed a good idea from Derry. Yeah, it's not such a good idea at 9 o'clock, driving back to Belfast with a sermon the next day. But uh, it meant I had to get up early just to make sure I had a sermon. And as I'm reading this passage that uh, Geraldine read earlier, I'm thinking, the crumbs from the table of the rich man? How did I miss that all week? How did I miss that all week? You two have a song called Crumbs from Your Table, for goodness sake. Dylan shouldn't be the title of this talk. It should be Crumbs from Your Table. And just as a wee aside, if you think I know something about you two, let me prove that I don't. At Greenbelt one year, I'm doing a seminar on you two, and, and the, the tent was, was pretty full, and I was feeling good about it, and I was going off on my wee ideas and rants, and I said, Crumbs from Your Table, that's an interesting song. And, and it was 2005, and they had done every song on the new album on the Vertigo tour except Crumbs from Your Table. And being knowledgeable about the band, I suggested that because it's written for the church, this song, Crumbs from your tables directed right at the Christian church. Maybe they didn't want to play the song to a wider audience because it was so specific to the Christian church. I thought it was a great idea. Little did I know that the lighting guy from U2, Willie Williams, who does all the staging, was sitting at the back. And he turned to my friend Martin and he said, Martin, that's a great idea. But they just can't get the rehearsal together. So maybe all my ideas about you 2 should be under the title Thought Stockman has on you 2 but actually the truth is they just couldn't get the rehearsal together. Crumbs from your table. From the brightest star, that's us, the church. From the brightest star comes the blackest hole. You had so much to offer. Why did you offer your soul? I was there for you when you needed my help. Would you deny for others what you demand for yourself? Would you deny for others what you demand for yourself? And you speak of signs and wonders, but I need something other. I would believe if I was able, I'm waiting on the crumbs from your table. And actually it's only this morning that I caught on that this is Bono trying to expound the story of Lazarus and the rich man. The church, the rich man, the Pharisees, they were speaking in signs and wonders. They were speaking in their religiosity. And the poor person, they wanted to believe. They wanted to be able to believe, but they couldn't believe because in the way of their belief was this church, this religious organization that were denying justice to the poor, that weren't living like the Old Testament prophets said, that weren't showing grace to the people around them. And so the poor left waiting on crumbs from your table because the rich church was denying for others what they were demanding for self. And I come to speak this into a church where I want to say to you again after a church committee meeting this week that you are generous beyond generosity. And I want to thank you for the amount of your hard-earned money that you have given 
to this congregation. When we set off on a journey to build these halls a few years ago, a million pounds seemed way beyond the potential or possibilities. It might take 10 years, it might take 15 years. Are we willing to take that risk? We are so far down the road to paying off these halls that it's almost within grasp. So keep your generosity going. Don't become apathetic in that. But included in that is the tithe that we gave for a school in Uganda. And of course, it's not a tithe, because if you tithe the money for the building, we'd be 10% short of the payment for the building. So you didn't give a tithe. You give 10% more than the million pounds that we needed for this. And when we built the school in Uganda, you've given another 25,000 pounds for wells and tax books and perimeter fences. And that doesn't include the tens of thousands of pounds that you give to Zandini Bantwana or Safara. Or all the other things that we give to Tear Fund and Christian Aid. I, as your minister, cannot express the generosity that I know is right here. So how does this passage then speak to us? Well, in one of the commentaries I read, the guy just said, I hate Amos. And anybody that tells you they like Amos is lying because Amos is hardcore. And they said, let's look at the plank in our eye before we point the finger at those who live in BT9. And so, why is this passage read? Why do we unpack this passage? I think it's because we don't want to become complacent in the fact that we think we're generous. Very, very briefly, three quick things. These three parables, it seems to me, have a word at the heart of them that I wish I'd picked up before, certainly last week's. And the word is apocalypse. Now, we've got apocalypse as some ending Armageddon-type thing that's going to happen at the end of time. Apocalypse actually means a disclosure of knowledge, a disclosure of something hidden. Religious contacts, we would say, a vision of heavenly secrets that can make sense of earthly realities. That seems to me to speak into this story of the parable uh, of the rich man and Lazarus. A vision of heavenly secrets that can make sense of earthly realities. And the rich man wasn't making sense of the earthly reality. He needed an apocalypse to tell him that what was happening in his life was way, way wrong and the judgment came as apocalypse. The shrewd manager had an apocalypse. The veil was taken from him and he was thinking, my relationship with this guy is going to get me into trouble and I'm going to end up as a poor man, so I've got to change my relationship with the people below me in the strata. I need to change the priorities of how I'm going to live my life. The Pharisees had an apocalypse when the prodigal son appeared back and didn't get the judgment they were thinking was toting towards him and the father opened his arms and welcomed him back. Never mind the apocalypse that that was to the prodigal and to the older brother who was the Pharisee. This is all about apocalypse. Moments where something happens and you're going on your road and you think you have it sussed and you think everything's put together and suddenly God breaks in his apocalypse and goes, you see your default position? It's too arrogant. It's too complacent. It's too much about you and you need to think again. So my question this week has been, Stockman, where is your apocalypse? Where's God asking you for a wake-up call? Fitzroy. Where's God asking us for a wake-up call? 
What apocalypse needs to kick in to give us a sense of perspective in the earthly realities by having a vision of the heavenly kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven? Where's your apocalypse? Secondly, who gets named in this story? I need to give Christine credit for this because she pointed out in a way that was beyond what I was getting at the time we met for coffee early in the week. Who gets named in this story? The rich man? The one who's done all the stuff to be recognized, to give himself a name in society? Because I bet you he had a name in society. But in the earthly reality, he had a name in society. But in the heavenly realms, he had no name at all. It's the poor guy who nobody knew the name of that gets the name. Apocalypse. Whose name's God whispering in the society of Belfast today? Who's the guy that, or the girl that we don't know the name of and don't want to know the name of or don't even want to get close enough to get the name of who God's mentioning by name? And all of us, wherever we are in our journey of faith, what we prayed at the start of the service, before the service started, in fact, as elders, was that whoever you are in this service right now, that you would have an understanding, wherever you are in the strata of what you think your reality is, or who you think you are placed in the society that you live in, that somehow in this service, by some transcendent force, that you would know before you left this service that God whispers your name, and God knows your name, even if you're not the reverent one at the front who everybody knows the name of. Your name Whispering your name. Isaiah chapter 43. Do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. And you are mine. Or as I have put it. God tinted the twilight orange. Like a dying candle flame. God gave all his love to you today. He kept whispering your name. Are you aware of the name that God names you. Christine was telling me about those in India who have been named unwanted because they were unwanted. And then somebody did something which said that they were going to start again and they could pick their own name for who they were. And they could be joy or hope or love or whatever. God whispers your name. He has redeemed in Christ. Are you aware of that love? And then let's come back to this judgment thing to finish. One of the other commentaries I was reading in the week put this wonderfully, and I thought I would share it with you. The Amos judgment. They were saying that we can concentrate on the judgment of Amos or on the story of the the rich man and Lazarus. We could concentrate on the judgment. And we could see God as this God of judgment and this God who's going to judge everything. And God is a judge, and God will judge, and Jesus said he would judge. But what this commentator rightfully said was, if we look underneath the layers of the judgment, it's about love. Because God's judgment is on those who don't love. Ultimately, what God's looking for in Amos is that the people of God love those who are marginalized, love justice, bring justice, that it flows like a stream. And he is judging anywhere where love does not rule or reign. Where love is not the priority of our lives. Where love is not what drives us into every day. Matthew 25. I used to, 
chaplaincy. We would be starting this weekend in my time. I know that I think they moved into Dervolgi last week, but it was always that last week in September, and you went through this summer where everything was fantastic, and then 88 students arrived in on your doorstep, and the noise levels went through the roof, and we called them pesky students for a week because it was a culture shock to the Stockman family. And you would get in there and early on, because I'm a grace man, you would explain grace to them and what's so amazing about grace by Philip Yancey, we did it for a whole term. And then you would start to get them to wrestle with what it is God wants them to do in the world. And you would turn to Matthew chapter 25 and you would say, here's the sheep and the goats. And you're a sheep, you're getting in if you feed the poor, if you look after the hungry, if you shelter those who haven't a shelter, if you visit the prisoner and the sick. And suddenly you're going, wait a minute, we've said that you get in if you're, you don't get in because of what you do. You get in because Jesus loves you. You get in because Jesus died on the cross for you. You get in because of grace, not by, through faith, not by works so that no one can boast. And then there's this, this passage in Matthew 25 that suggests that if you do these things, you get in. And of course, that's not what's going on at all. Yes, there's a certain judgment in this passage. But the bottom line, if we get past the judgment, is the grace-driven love of God. Why do you feed somebody who hasn't got any food? Why did the food bank open up this week? Well, you open up because the person coming to the door deserves it. Because the person coming to the door got enough votes in the election. Because the person coming to the door was number one on the charts. Because the person coming to the door plays for Linfield or Cliftonville or whatever else. Because the person coming to the door is really holy and righteous. No, when Food Bank give a bag of food to a family, it is an act of grace. When you visit the prisoner, you do it as an act of grace. When you reach out across the divide in Ardoin, thank you, Harold Good. Thank you, Harold Good. You do it by grace. And when grace is not there, then you can find the judgment of God. When grace is not there, then you can find the judgment of God. Yesterday at the wedding, I was leaving and I said to Greg, Greg, I said, Greg, I have to go home now. I have a sermon in the morning. He says, I'll just preach the one you preached today. And, uh, and my sermon was, grace is a gift, the gift of their love, the gift of God's salvation. Grace is a way of life. It's how we live in the kingdom. It's what we do at our doing. It's what we do in a divided society. It's what we do among the poor. It's a way of life. It's going to the people who are hungry and thirsty and in prison and sick and visiting them and giving them what they need. And grace is the strength that God gives us to live the way of the gift. Grace is the strength that God gives us to live the way of the gift. And I'm sorry, but it was too good a place to finish. 40 years ago today, Four guys got together in a kitchen and they didn't make a rock and roll band. They started a little mission. And they went out in the world and they told people about God and they put God on a stage. And people have come to faith through what they've done. Yeah, we disagree with some of the things they say. Yeah, they're only a rock band. But they come up with this one. Grace. A name for a girl. And a thought that can change the world. A thought that can change the world. A thought that can change the world. God is judging a world that is graceless. And he's saying, here's a thought. Now, if we live it, we change the world. Apocalypse, apocalypse now. Let's pray.
Lord, break into our complacency with apocalypse. Take away the veil from our eyes to show us where we need to rethink, where we need to act differently, where we need to find a grace-driven life that is about the priorities of heaven rather than the priorities of earth, that are about getting a name in heaven rather than a name on earth. Yes, we thank you for your gift of grace. We thank you that Jesus died on a cross so that we would be able to receive that gift of grace and become members of your team, your community, your family. But once we get that, Lord, we pray that you would drive us into living a life of grace in the world around us. Putting grace into the places where you're judging at this moment in time because they're graceless places. And then we pray as we think about such heady, idealistic, revolutionary ideas that your grace from the transcendent God would give us the strength this week, the wisdom this week, the courage to jump into something this week that might bring grace where we walk, where we live, where we work, where we move. Be it so in the name of God. Amen.